Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. And it says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on this holiday weekend. I love, I love these holiday weekends because I can look out and I can see, like, man, who are the faithful? Um, I can see who's not here. Like, I know some of these people, they posted on their Instagram, they're sitting on a beach. But you chose to start your week in worship. And so for that, I am very thankful. And also, I love weekends like this because we get a special opportunity just to have a standalone sermon. What I mean by that is we always teach through books or passages of the Bible because I do not want the responsibility of picking and choosing what God says to his people. I feel like that's too great a weight for me, so I just start in his word and I just tell you what it says. That way, if you get frustrated, I can say I'm just like the mailman right? I didn't write the mail, I just deliver it. What you do with it, that's totally up to you. But every once in a while, we hit one of these special Sundays where we're coming out of a series and we're about to launch a series. We just finished a series of Paul's prayer in the letter and the church to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start next week a incredible series uh, through the book of Acts, seeing how God builds his church and what a privilege it is to play a part in it. But this in-between week, I get an opportunity just to share with you something that God has put on my heart. And I am excited because this was about a year and a half ago in my prayer time that I was reading this passage and the Holy Spirit just convicted me about who we are as a church. And I was thinking, man, I'm just looking forward to an opportunity that I can share this with our church. It took a year and a half to get here. And I was working on this sermon. I, I realized like I had, a, I had like, normally I have seven days to prepare a sermon and it takes 45 minutes to teach it, right? I had 74 weeks to prepare this sermon. So I hope for your Labor Day weekend, you're ready for a, uh, a good study from the book of Jeremiah. You got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I want to pray for us as we get started. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together as your people to sit under the authority of your word. Father, this morning we get to look back through almost 2,700 years of human history, 2,700 years of your sovereignty and your faithfulness among your people. And Father, that we get to celebrate that we serve a God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the things you said to the people of God in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah speaks true to us today. And Father, as we sit under your word, I pray that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might leave looking more like you. That as a church, we might have a fresh conviction for the purpose to which you have called us. It is in your son Jesus' name we, say, we pray these things. Amen. 
Jeremiah chapter 3, if you're using one of our blue Bibles, it's page 702. If you're using your Bible or finding it on your phone, it's in the Old Testament about halfway through. And I know Jeremiah is probably not a book of the Bible that you spend a significant amount of studying. I Honestly, neither do I. Uh, but every once in a while, I find myself drawn back to the book of Jeremiah, and it is always convicting. It is always challenging because the book of Jeremiah was written by a guy named, what do you think? Jeremiah, right? Really creative with the Bible, the titles in the Old Testament. I'm going to write a book about what God has said to me. I'm going to call it Adam. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet of God, someone who God sent to speak for him about 600 years or so before the birth of Jesus with one purpose, to invite his people back into fellowship with him. Over the span of his life, over the span of his ministry, Jeremiah continued to extend an invitation for the people of God to come back to God. And they had drifted far away from God. God had led the people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, out of the land of of slavery, where he had established them as a nation. And he led them miraculously through the Red Sea, and he led them into the Promised Land, and he gave them a place that was not their own, and he drove out enemies before them. And the idea was that this would be the perfect place for God's presence to dwell with God's people. But time and time again, like in the book of Judges and the kings, the people rejected God, and they got distracted with the gods of the land that they settled in. And they began serving those gods, and they found their way more appealing. They found their way more comfortable. They found their way more easy. And so they would set aside the promises and the commands and the goodness of our God to serve these silly gods of the people in the land where they had settled. And so it was in the time of Jeremiah. The people had pushed God away. They were worshiping other gods. And I would love to read the backstory, the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 3, but we've invited elementary kids in, and some of the language that God uses to describe the faithlessness. You just go back and read it, um, and it shows us the significance of our sin against God, the severity of our sin against God. To put it in the most polite way possible, God says, you were unfaithful, and you were unfaithful a lot. And you might have been unfaithful for money, if you get the idea. Just flip back a few verses, you'll see. But God's pretty brutally honest But here in Jeremiah chapter 3, I just want to work through this passage. It says this. It says, And the Lord said to me. So Jeremiah is getting this word from God. He's spending time with God. God says to his people, says to Jeremiah, Say to my people, Faithless Israel. He's calling her an adulterous nation. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And we don't have time, but the nation of Israel divided into two different kingdoms at this point. He says, Faithless Israel, as bad as they are, at least there's a, a hope for them. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the the Lord. I will not be angry. Then he goes on, he says, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners, among every green tree, and that you have not obeyed My voice declares the Lord. Verse 14, return again, he says, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I love the way this starts because God never sugarcoats our sin. 
And so often we live in this world that we don't want to talk about sin because sin makes us uncomfortable. But I say it all the time, if we're not convicted of sin, we're never compelled to a savior. When God extends this invitation, we're going to talk a lot about the invitation that God extends. He starts with return, O faithless one. Like I'm acknowledging how far you have walked away from me. You have scattered your favors. You have done uh, egregious things with the gods, the statues, the idols of the land in whom you're living. And some of the practices that they would use to worship these guys, they were far from the holy life that God had called his people to live. He says, I see who you are, and I see where you are, and I see what you have done. And still, I'm extending an invitation. Twice he says, return. I had a professor in college tell me that when you read the Bible, a basic hermeneutical practice is, if it's repeated, it's important. They didn't have a way to put an exclamation mark in the Bible, and so they would just repeat it over and over again, return, return. It's God's way of emphasizing his invitation for his people to return from him. No matter how far they drifted from God, no matter the fallout they were feeling from their sin, he extends this invitation. As I was studying this, I just wrote in my Bible, God is a God of gracious and generous invitations. Do you like to receive an invitation in the mail? Like we get a lot of junk mail at our house. We get bills that I just give Carissa so she can take care of, and we get a ton of junk mail. But every once in a while, an invitation will come in. And you can tell it's an invitation because it's handwritten. It's like someone actually knows us, and they wanted to invite us to be a part of something that was special to them. And then I open it, and it's an invitation to a three-year-old's birthday party. It's like, oh, okay, well, this will be wonderful. But not too long ago, I'm just kidding. We throw pretty good three-year-old birthday parties. Nonetheless, not too long ago, we got an invitation in the mail, and it was beautiful. And I was like, oh, this is special. So I opened it up, and it was an invitation to a wedding. I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. We're going to have to buy a gift, but it's okay. It'll be really cool. So I tell Carissa, this is, this is an invitation to a wedding. It's in October. I'm so excited. I, tell, I opened it right up. I put it on the refrigerator. And we talked about it. It's going to be so fun. I said, maybe I'll even find someone else to preach that Sunday so I can stay up late at the wedding. And uh, we talked about how fun it's going to be to celebrate our friends. And a few weeks ago, the bride texted me, hey, are you guys coming to our wedding? And I was like, yeah, the invitation is on the fridge. And I looked at it right next to the invitation is the return envelope, the self-addressed, pre-stamped RSVP. And I was like, hmm, I think we were supposed to fill that out and send it in. And I was like, yeah, I got it. I took it out and I was like, oh, this is really nice. This is one of those weddings. I've literally never been to a wedding like this. I got to pick my food. And I know most of you think like, what am I going to want to eat in four months? For me, it's always meat. So steak. And I even wrote double meat, no vegetables. Like that's, I'll see what I get when I get to the wedding. But I put it back in the envelope. I, I sealed it up. And then I set it on the counter. And another week went by and the bride texted me, hey, are you going to ever send in that RSVP? And I was like, yeah, double meat, no, no vegetables. Like I'll be there. And I was like, oh, I didn't send it in. Finally, I sent it in sent her video proof of me sending it in. But it got me thinking, like, man, I was excited for that invitation. I was excited for the opportunity to celebrate our friends. I was excited to get to pick my food at a wedding. Like, I was excited about all of it. And still, I let the response to the invitation sit there. And as I think about God being a God of gracious and generous invitations, I wonder sometimes, like, how do we respond to the invitation that God extends? God is always inviting his people, return to me, come back to me. I see who you are. Man, I see where you are. I see how far into sin you have wandered. We never drift towards God. We drift away from God, and yet God is constantly inviting us back in. God is a God of gracious invitations. But the question is, are we accepting the invitation? 
we gather together, we put it up on church on Sunday, and we celebrate the invitation. We talk to one another about how good it is. We think, what is it going to be like to get to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb and the food that's going to be served? But do we take the steps to return the envelope? Because God has done all the work. Like, and think about a wedding, it's paid for, everything is planned, all I have to do, I mean, I am officiating this wedding, so it was essential that I arrive on time. But nonetheless, uh, so I, thought, I thought you knew I'd be there, I'm marrying you guys, I'm going to be the center of attention of your wedding. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, do we respond to the invitation that God sends? Because see, God tells a parable, we're not going to turn there, but if you take a notes, Luke chapter 14, God tells a parable, and he says, God is always extending invitation, Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus says it's like, like a man who throws this wonderful banquet and he's made all the preparations and he sends in a, in a save the date out far ahead of time and all the people that were invited, save the date, I'm throwing a party of a lifetime. I want you to be there. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to taste the food that I'm preparing. I want you to be the opportunity to lavish upon you all the goodness that I can provide. And he sends out the invitation. The people get excited. And, a, and, and then time comes to respond to the invitation and, and no one shows up. And he says to his servants, you need to go out and find those people that I've invited. And he sends out a servant. They begin to one excuse after another. I just bought some oxen. I got to go. I bought some land. I just got married. All good excuses, but all cheap excuses compared to the invitation to the party. God is a God of gracious invitations. And he says, like his grace is evident in his invitation. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. He says, I could look on you with anger. You've done shameful things. You've chosen sin. You've turned your back on me. But I, and, but God says, my character is merciful. I will not be angry forever. All you have to do is accept the invitation. Acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord, that you went after other gods, and return. Return to me, for I am your master. It could also be translated your husband. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. God extends invitations to every individual to come back to him. No matter where you are, no matter how far you've drifted, no matter what your life looks like, no matter how shameful you feel, God extends an invitation. But his invitation is into a community. He extends the invitation. He says, I'm going to take anybody that'll come. I'll take one uh, from a city. I'll take two from a family. Whoever's going to respond to the invitation, but I'm going to build them into a people. He extends the invitation. It's accepted by individuals, but God builds a people. Verse 15, he says this. He says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, I know this was written in the Old Testament. I know it was written 627 or so years before the life of Jesus. But doesn't this sound exactly like how God works with his people today? Like we've drifted from him, we've stumbled into sin, we're feeling the fallout from sin in our life, and God graciously extends an invitation. He extends it to individuals, and anyone who will accept the invitation is welcome to come to be with the people of God. And he says, when you gather together, I'm going to put shepherds over you. And I find this passage is highlighted in my Bible. I find it so convicting. I will give you shepherds, so often used to describe the image used to describe the leaders of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. I'll give you shepherds after my own heart. I think that is one of the most convicting and compelling passages I've read in Scripture in my life. Like, it is a privilege to be a pastor here at Eastside. Like, I am humble and grateful. There is not a week that goes by that I don't realize that it is your kindness and your generosity and your trust that makes this possible. And my commitment to you is that I will always be, as we gather back to God, I will always be a shepherd after God's own heart. 
I was talking to someone this week and telling them about our church and the difference that God makes. I was just telling them story, like one after another, like this is the way that God is working in our church. These are the families that he's drawing to himself. This is the life that he is changing. This is who we just got to baptize. This is people reading the scripture for the very first time, seeing God come to come alive in their life. And he's like, man, that must be incredible. Your church must be huge. I was like, it's, it's not, but God is working. And he said, you must be a great preacher. I said, honestly, I don't know if I'm a great preacher. I'm probably not the most eloquent presenter, but I've learned to spend time in the presence of God so that everything I serve our church, everything I give you is the overflow of what God is giving me. That's why so often I stand up here and I preach a passage of scripture that comes up and I take you somewhere else in the Bible and I say, in my prayer time this week, this is what the Holy Spirit said. Because I hear in the back of my mind the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he just simply says to the church, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received. Like the Apostle Paul said, all I really have to give you is what Jesus has told me. But I'm going to listen to what God has to say. I'm going to lean into him. And then when God speaks to me, when the Holy Spirit compels and convicts me, I'm going to pass it on to you. And so just this week, in my prayer time, I wrapped up early in the week a study in 1 John. And in my prayer time, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, I read these words. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. You remember I said Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In the Old Testament, he says, I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. In the New Testament, God clarifies. He says, we know that the Son of God has come, that Jesus has come into the world, has given us understanding. He's given us insight into who God is and how God works. Then he goes on, he says, so that we may know, again, knowledge and understanding, him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I said I want this to be like a conversation about what God is calling us to as a church, that we're going to extend countless invitations for people to experience immeasurably more. What we're extending an invitation to is for people to experience Jesus for themselves. That's what 1 John says. We know that the Son of God has come, that he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, relationally. As I think and pray about who we are as a church, God gave us a mission statement that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but it's leading others to experience immeasurably more. And people always say, like, what is that immeasurably more? It's like, well, you join Eastside, you get immeasurably more riches. And they're like, oh, sign me up. And they come and find out that is not true. No, the immeasurably more is more of God. It is a greater relationship, a greater understanding, a greater fullness, a greater intimacy with the God who called us, who created us, who's, who's called us to be his church. 1 John chapter 4 or 5 says, so that we may know him. The invitation has always been to know God. I'll give you shepherds after my own heart. They will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So now you think about how the passage is unfolding. The people of God have wandered far from God. They've stumbled into sin. They're dealing with the fallout of their sin. They feel hopeless and God shows up and he extends an invitation hey, come back to me, admit your guilt, repent, turn from the way you're walking and turn towards me, come to me and I will take whoever accepts the invitation. As you gather together as a people, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. They will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now he's gathered a people, he's put overseers over them to take care of his flock. And in verse 16, it says, and when you have multiplied. So now God as a people, he's taken individuals who've accepted the invitation. Now God as a people. And when you have multiplied, multiplied and been fruitful in the land. In those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. I love the word multiplied. 
Like that's how God builds his people. Adam and Eve uh, created in the image of God, placed in the garden, perfect environment, to have perfect fellowship with God. And before they ever stumble into their own sin and set the world ablaze because of sin, God gives them the command, be fruitful and multiply. And then they sin and the world is messed up and God sends a flood and he wipes everyone out. He saves Noah and his family. Noah comes off the ark. And to Noah, he renews his covenant. He says, you are my people. Be fruitful and multiply. To Abraham, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And Abraham says, I have no child. It's going to be very difficult. And he says, I'll, I'll take care of that. I will take care. I will give you the multiplication anointing. You be fruitful and multiply. To the church, he would say, go and make disciples of all nations. It's a multiplication anointing. I remember 100 years ago when I was in elementary school, in like first, second grade or whatever, you learn basic math, right? Addition and subtraction. Then they send you to third or fourth grade, whenever it is, and they teach you multiplication. It's like, man, these numbers get big so much faster. One plus one, one plus two. But then you start adding a multiplier, and God is the one who multiplies his people. What we see here is we don't control output. I can get discouraged that our church isn't growing numerically as fast as I want. God reminds me so often about the spiritual growth he is producing in the lives of the people who call Eastside home. But he also reminds me that obedience is not measured by outcomes. Obedience is measured by faithfulness, by inputs. We don't control output. We control input. But we are responsible for input. We're responsible for accepting the invitation to come back to God. We're responsible for continually repenting and turning our life more and more over to him as he gives us an ever-increasing affection for him. We are responsible for being people like God who extend invitation after invitation after invitation. And God will take care of the multiplication. That if God has called us to it, he will provide for us. And then some of the significance of this is lost through 2,600 years of history, but he says, in those days, after you've been fruitful and multiplied, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. For us, we're like, yeah, what does that mean? But for the Israelite hearing that in the Old Testament time, the ark of the covenant of the Lord was everything. It was the ark that represented God's presence. They made it according to God's instruction. They carried it with them as they went. They built a tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness. When they settled in Jerusalem in the promised land, they built a temple. Also, they would have a place to put the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord so that symbolically God's presence would rest there with his people. And he said, in those days, it's a prophecy looking forward to the New Testament. It's a prophecy looking forward to today. He says, you're no longer going to say, man, where's the Ark at? Like, if only the ark was here, he says, at that time, verse 17, Jerusalem, which is where God's, the place where God's people settled, shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it. If you have a Bible with you, underline this part of verse 17. All the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. That is significant. God says, no longer are you going to need an ark, a, a symbol of your religion there. You are going to be my people. And my presence will dwell where my people are. And as I go to work, and as I pour out my presence on my people, the nations are going to gather to it. That God's presence was never meant to be poured out and contained. It was meant to be poured out to overflowing. So as we gather together as his people, as the church, as we understand God, as we know him, as we spend time with Jesus, as we fellowship with one another and with our Savior, his presence in our midst becomes the thing that draws the world to Jesus. 
And it's God's presence that draws people in and changes them. It says they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. We launched a church a few years ago, almost three years ago now, with one vision statement in mind. It's this, leading others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. And I know that mission statement seems kind of long, but every word is dripping with significance. First of all, we, we exist to lead others. We're so thankful for what God is doing in our midst, but I've become so convicted that what God is doing in our midst is not just for us and it's not just about us. It is so that his presence can overflow from us. That if we are who God calls us to be, both as individuals and as a church, we will lead others to experience for themselves the God who created them, to experience immeasurably more. And in his grace and in his sovereignty, God says the method for this is inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. Like it's easy to settle in and go with the world. That's what the Israelites did for a long time. But the invitation was always to exchange that which is common for that which is holy. To exchange that which the world is selling, which you know where it leads, for that which is holy. To exchange our trust in the world. For them, it was small idols that were seemingly insignificant, but seemed like a shortcut to the desired result. For us, it would be trading things like comfort as our goal or convenience, and instead leaning into conviction that comes from God, trusting that the life God invites us to, the place in God's presence is more powerful than anything the world can offer. Because here's the thing, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And honestly, so are we, right? Like we read this Old Testament story in the book of Jeremiah, we think, what a bunch of dummies. God was leading these people through the Red Sea. He established them in the land where he called them. He planted them. How could they run off after idols? But so often we settle in and we start looking at what the world has to offer. And we forget that God didn't call us to what the world has to offer. He calls us to experience immeasurably more by exchanging the common for the holy. This passage from Jeremiah has been on my mind for a long time because this is the way that God is going to build his church. This is the way that God has always established his people. This is the way that God has advanced his name. He extends an invitation to an individual. He gathers all who will come to be a community. He puts shepherds over them to fill them with knowledge and understanding that they might know God for themselves. And then God multiplies them. And when God multiplies them, his presence overflows from them. And when God's presence overflows from his people, the world is drawn in and the world is changed. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is this morning to gather together 2,600 years after the book of Jeremiah was written to reflect on the sovereignty of God who saw fit to save us from our sins. And Lord, it, it hurts to admit that we are more like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament than we would ever like to admit or for others to see. But God, when we acknowledge that, we acknowledge we serve the same God, the one who is always extending an invitation. So Father, I pray that as we prepare to sing these next two songs, as we prepare to make much of you, we would see ourselves in light of who you've called us to be, in light of who you are transforming us to be that you would convict us of sin. Where is it that you're inviting us to exchange the common for the holy? What have we idolized in our life, whether that's family or fame or fortune or comfort or convenience? Where have you're calling us to set aside that which seems like a shortcut offered by the world to experience the goodness and grace of a God who calls us to a holy calling? 
Father, that we might experience the presence and the power of God in a very real way because you have promised us the presence and the power of God. And that, Father, as we gather together as your people, as we move into this fall season, as we celebrate who you are and what you're doing in our midst, that it would overflow from us. That in this fall season, God, you would draw people to yourself through your church in such a significant way that we stand back and stand in awe and say, God is building a church that only he can take credit for. Father, it's a big prayer, but it's a prayer in line with the promises you have made to your people for all generations. And so for that reason, we ask you, God, establish us as your people, pour out the presence of the God who we put our trust in, and let your presence overflow to change the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.